Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 282 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we are pushing in on five years of this show and also 300 episodes. Just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for sharing. We got some uh, fun ways to share the podcast too. And it means the world to me when you leave ratings and reviews and let us know that this matters. And a lot of you email as well. So if you ever want to get in touch, the email is carrie at carrienewhoff.com. So thank you so much, guys. Just want to let you know how grateful I am. I'm really excited about today's podcast. I um, have known Joel Manby for a number of years now, and he's got quite a remarkable career. Uh, Started out at age 35 as CEO of Saab USA, Moved to Greenlight, Amazon's brief moment where they sold cars. Yeah, for real. We'll talk about that. And then was CEO of Hershend Entertainment. And then uh, most recently, CEO of SeaWorld. Yeah, when took it on right after the Blackfish documentary was released. And I flew down to Atlanta and uh, went to Joel's home and did this interview in person. And it's a very personal interview. Joel is so honest about um, the personal cost of leadership. It uh, cost him dearly at different points in his life and also how to become resilient and how to try to integrate biblical principles in the marketplace. And it's just very honest, very real. uh, And I hope you'll find it helpful. Joel and I talked a lot about the interview after And uh, I thought it was really going to encourage a lot of you because Joel is just completely transparent about what was hard. Um, There was really nothing that was easy. You guys are in leadership. You know that. Um, But I think you're really going to appreciate this. Joel is just a a brilliant uh, thinker and a brilliant mind. And so we have a a pretty great retrospective of his remarkable time in leadership and also uh, the personal cost that that brought about and what he's learned and what he's thinking about moving forward. So I think you're really, really going to appreciate that. And one of my goals here on the podcast is just to bring you honest conversations. And this is one of them. And again, if you subscribe, you never miss anything because sometimes we drop two episodes per week and we'll be doing that again in August. So uh, thank you for all of you who subscribe. Hey, really appreciate your support of our partners too, because they're doing everything they can to support you. And one of the challenges I think most people have is graphic support. Online really is changing everything. And what do you do? So I thought to tell you about what ProMediaFire does, why don't we talk to one of their clients? And this is Tim Schmidt. He is the lead pastor, founding pastor of Journey Church in Rochester, New York. And I sat down with Tim and I asked him this question. I just said, Tim, tell me, like, why did you decide to look outside your church to get help with media? Here's what he had to say. We were constantly, I was constantly frustrated with uh, having great ideas, but not being able to execute them. And when you're dependent on a couple of people in a new church, Uh, Sometimes it takes a long time to get things done, and it's just a constant uh, frustration. Uh, And I'm not the kind of person who is able to uh, really follow up with people all the time and just stay on them. Uh, I like to delegate a task and know that that task is being done. And that's what we found with Pro uh, Media Fire is that uh, we could take an idea that we had, give them a rough draft of it, 
And uh, it was kind of like having a, a staff of really talented people that you could rely on that once you give them a task, you know it's going to be done, you know it's going to be done right, and you don't have to think about it. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Well, if you need help with custom graphic design and video, yeah, this is not stock stuff, but you want custom stuff, go to ProMediaFire. Listeners of this podcast get 10% off plans for life at ProMediaFire.com forward slash carry. That's ProMediaFire.com forward slash carry. And yeah, it is fall. Some of you, your ministry season is already back. Some of you, like us, it's September. Uh, well, what if you don't know where to start with volunteer training? Or if you do, is it hard to get everybody in the same place at the same time? Answer, yes. Well, Ministry Grid makes it really simple to train every volunteer and leader in your church. They have a library now with over 3,500 videos, 800 courses, training for every ministry area and leadership level from volunteers to ministry directors. Uh, Ministry Grid's scope and sequence of training makes it easy to know who needs what training. And the best news, for the month of August, this month only, you get unlimited access to Ministry Grid for your entire church for $3.99 a year. And you're locked in every year after that at that price if you choose to be. So my church, Connexus Church, has been using Ministry Grid to help train our volunteers. And I'm also helping them with some content too. So you're going to see me inside that. Now, if you want to take advantage of this deal, here's what they're doing, okay? I'm working on some exclusive courses. But if you purchase a subscription in the month of August, you get a copy of my latest book, Didn't See It Coming, as a bonus offer on top of a rare price of just $399 a year. That's for your entire church, but you got to lock it in this August. If you want to take advantage of this deal, just go to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry. You can get unlimited training for $399 for your entire church, plus a copy of Didn't See It Coming. And once again, that's ministrygrid.com forward slash carry. And now uh, my heartfelt and meaningful and I think very powerful conversation with Joel Manby. Well, Joel, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks, Gary. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm we're excited. at your house. Yes. In Alpharetta. Alpharetta. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, not a whole lot. I mean, we've had, we're pushing 300 episodes by the time oh, this gosh. airs. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, it's, it's been a lot of fun. That is fantastic. Um, not a lot of people have your CV. They really don't. Your resume. Yeah. Uh, you served in four major corporations and helped others, including a not-for-profit, one of my favorites that we'll talk about. Yes. Um, can you give us a quick history? Yeah, I would love to give you a quick history. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to include a little of my personal story too, yeah, yeah. not just my professional Well, you're a Harvard story. MBA too. Well, that that's uh, some people shouldn't know that. It's not always helpful. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think one, one thing that's really relevant is I grew up uh, very modestly and very poor in a small town called Battle Creek, Michigan. My dad was a failed entrepreneur, factory right. worker. And um, I want people to hear that because there's a lot of young leaders listening to this and sometimes they think they have to have special advantage or special opportunities. Really, everything that, that came my way, I either worked for or people you know, just pointed me in the right direction. It was really helpful. Um, I was able, as you said, went to Albion College and then to Harvard. But I have to say, I had no clue that I wanted to be in business at first. In fact, I wanted to be a baseball player all through college. And it wasn't, I got invited to a Detroit Tiger tryout camp. No way. And yeah, I was, I was we, we had pretty good I grew career. up watching the Tigers. the Tigers. I was born in Windsor. Actually, yeah. Cincinnati Reds too. But the funny thing is, is, and I was a senior in college 
And it, it wasn't until I went to that tryout camp and, and went up against the 90 mile an hour pitchers and I never even fouled off a pitch. I mean, I just was like a ceiling fan swinging at pitches. And that was the first time where I said, hey, I got to get serious about academics and really, really go there. I was going to be a lawyer at first, um, but I got the best advice ever from a lawyer who I worked for for an internship. And, he, and at the end of the internship, I said, do you, do you think I should be a lawyer? And he said, no, right out of it, which really, really surprised me. And as he said, look, and, and you're a football player, lawyers tend to be the referees. You're like a quarterback. You want to run things. You're a born leader. You should go into business. And it was the best advice I ever got. And huh. so that's why I went on to, to Harvard. But it, it, for, for the listeners, it wasn't like I had this proactive strategy at, at 16 or 18 or 22 to go into business and be a CEO. And a lot of a lot of CEOs will say that I, I never sought out that job. I never sought out to be at that level. I just did the best I could at every level. So, um, the reason I went to General Motors, uh, right? Actually, I was a deferred admit out of Albion, so I had two years before Harvard. GM General Motors was the only company that would pay for someone to go back and get their MBA. And oh, since wow. I was so poor, there was no way I was going to be able to yeah. afford it. So poor. Tuition. I mean, I've heard you tell a story that you wanted to go for ice cream after yeah. winning. A, do you want to tell that story? Well, yeah, because it's, it's uh, my, my dad worked really hard and my dad loved me and I know he did, but he had a failing auto dealership or a, sorry, a tractor dealership and they were running out of money, it turns out. Now, my mom told me after he died that he was bringing home about $50 a week. So, And even, this is in the 60s. Yeah, even in the 60s, that's wow. like 2,500 bucks a year. So that's not much. And and I hit the game winning home run, whatever. And we were all going to go to A&W. And uh, that ages me right there. Um, and my dad wouldn't take me. And the whole team went. And I, I started crying on the way home. I was crying in bed. My mom came in and I said, why doesn't, why doesn't dad love me? How can, how can he not take me to the A&W? And she said, you know, we, we don't have any cash and he's trying to make payroll on Friday and a lot. And so there were many stories like that, that we could, we could, we could go to, but, um, I, I definitely had kind of a, a fear, almost a fear of failure or a fear that I wouldn't have enough because my parents didn't have enough, at least in my mind. Now, the truth is we never missed a meal. Yeah. I had love, but I will tell you that that definitely influenced kind of my trajectory. How so? I'm not sure I would have chosen business if I was just focused on where my heart was, honestly. I mean, if you, if you look at my profile, it said I should have been a coach or a pastor. <laughs> I have a very... Uh, meaning my heart was really strong for other people. I wanted to, and it wasn't so much about just the bottom line. And yet I was afraid of not making enough money. And I, I, I hate to admit that because I yeah. know that's not, that's not of God. That's not what Christ speaks about. It has been a, an Achilles heel of, I wasn't trusting God enough to do what I felt maybe was in my heart. Now, I will tell you, I ended up loving my business career, but it wasn't until later, and we'll get to that. I know we talk about the Hershen experience. The first 20 years of my career, about 15 with General Motors, were very, very difficult. 
because I kept thinking there must be a better way to lead, a more caring way, a more loving way, and still get great financial results. Right. But um, it took me a long time to get there. So, um, you know, kind of finishing up the the Yeah, yeah. Career, Just give, give us the bird's eye view because we're going to drill down. It's, was, it's pretty remarkable, especially given your background. It was, uh, you know, I went to, went to Harvard and then we helped start Saturn Corporation. There was only four of us on the marketing team and Saturn at the time was a, Really big bet with General Motors that we can go into if you'd, if you, you'd yeah, care. Yeah, we will. You can still see a few on the road today, yeah, and right? It's, it was incredibly strong launch and really successful for about 10 years before the, the broader GM bankruptcy uh, affected it. But um, because of the success of Saturn, I actually went on to Saab and was CEO of Saab North America at a very young age at 35. And, and it was really because of the success of Saturn. They wanted a Saturn person to run Saab because Saturn had a so-so car with phenomenal marketing and <laughs> phenomenal distribution. Saab had an amazing car with really mediocre distribution and really right. mediocre. And GM city. bought the Swedish company, yes, right? They, Saab. they bought Saab. And then uh, I went there and stayed and we had a really good uh, set of years. Uh, so you're CEO at 35. Yeah, 35 of a, of a major division of General Motors. And Long story short, as most corporate uh, promotions go, and a lot of listeners know this, you get a promotion and they added uh, South America and Asia, you know, 5% raise, and now I'm on the road 80% of the time. Right. And I had three young kids. My, my wonderful wife, Marky, was saying, hey, I, I can't do this. And so I asked to just take uh, America back and let go of Asia because that those were like month at a time trips. Yeah. And my boss said no. And uh, in hindsight, I think I probably should have gone back and said, I'm leaving if you don't do what I'm asking because I can't do this anymore. At the same time he said no, a search firm called and that I went to a dot-com startup that was actually Amazon's car tab. So in 1999, you could buy a car on Amazon and <laughs> Bezos was on our board. I mean, it was a phenomenal experience, which we can talk about if you want. But yeah, we will. Well, it was called Greenlight, Greenlight.com. Right? Yeah. It crashed and burned in the, in the dot-com implosion. Well, we sold it, but you know, we had yeah. to sell it basically. Minutes later, yeah. implosion. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I was already on the board of Hirsch Entertainment while I was at Saab, was able to transition to the theme park business. And I spent 13 wonderful years there, which I'd love to talk about. And that's where I, mm. that's where I really learned a loving work environment that still is very accountable, could create great profitability. Then I was asked to go to uh, SeaWorld about three years, uh, four, four years ago now, stayed there almost three, resigned, which is a, a interesting story. And then now really spend my time, um, as non-executive chair of Orange, which mm -hmm. you're very involved in. And yeah, we're spending tomorrow in media. Yes, with, we are. Uh, with Rethink with Orange. Really, yeah. really, uh, you've done so much for that organization. And uh, so that's that's long and short of the, the career side. Yeah, and that's quite something. I mean, and you went to SeaWorld, just to put this in context, right after Blackfish was released and yes. the, the air was coming out of the balloon quickly. Yes. And I think their previous CEO, was he fired or did he resign? He, he was let go. Yeah. Um, and and I, I'm happy to go into that whole situation. Yeah, just give, just give us the broad context yeah, well, because they, that's leadership under fire. My basically, goodness. Um, 
the Blackfish, for those who don't know about it, was a documentary, a shockumentary that made SeaWorld mm. look very, very bad. And I, yeah. I loved SeaWorld and I still hated them when I saw the documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so well done. And it basically attributed the trainer's death to whales who are going crazy because they're in captivity. Right. And um, that that's not true, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, sales at the SeaWorld facilities dropped in half. Um, so this is right prop, next to Disney, right? Yeah, profitability dropped in half. And this is the big statistic. The trustworthiness of SeaWorld, 40% of the country had seen Blackfish. Can you imagine? 40%? 40%. Because it was run every week on CNN, who purports itself to be a news agency. Um, right. But it, 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 it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. Yes, it did. Right? It did. And then it but got then picked CNN up. CNN bought mm -hmm. it. And so what happened is our trustworthiness with the American public went from 65% top box score, best, best ever, down to 35% in a year and a half. Wow. And so the, the CEO was let go. He's a wonderful person. I actually, you know, there's another side of that story. I probably shouldn't go down that path, but I, I don't know that he, the, the board either really realized the extent of the damage of blackfish. So I was recruited in and my job was to reposition the brand, which I feel like we did incredibly well. Um, it's known as a animal entertainment brand, right? And right. Shamu. And it was a, one of the biggest business paradoxes I've ever seen when the very thing that puts you at the top and your brand was known for Shamu was also the biggest liability now. Wow. Yeah. And, and people weren't coming anymore because of that. Um, we did some incredible work and I'm very proud of a lot of things that we accomplished there. But uh, in the end of the day, the trustworthiness came back. We ended orca breeding. We repositioned the company as a, basically a purpose-driven brand that right. we call Park to Planet. And the numbers were coming back. Unfortunately, we had a we had a bad 17. 90% of it could be attributed directly to hurricanes, but I needed 17 personally to go up and it went down. And I think the board made a decision, you know, we're we're probably gonna have to make a change. Yet um, on my last day of work, we were up 12%. California was up 50%. So I think if I had been given a little bit more time, mm -hmm. I think the, the numbers came back very quickly. And in a three-year cycle business, anyone who runs a company with a three-year cycle, meaning it takes three years to develop a theme park product, a, a ride, oh, yeah. an attraction. Yeah. You know, I, so I, I feel good about what I did there, but um, there's a lot more we could go into. Um, well, and we will, but I think that that's a, you know, that's like over two decades, two and a half decades of, leadership at the senior level. And I think there's a lot of resonance. I think sometimes if you're in ministry, which some of us are, you look at corporate and think, well, wouldn't that be easy? <laughs> right? Well, I, I never look at ministry and think, wouldn't that be easy? Uh, I'll tell you that. Yeah. But, well, and you're heavily involved and have been for years at North Point Church and have been an elder yeah. at North Point and good friends with Andy and with Reggie yes. Stanley. Uh, Reggie Stanley. Reggie, 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 Reggie Joyner. Joyner. Yes. Yeah, this is evening podcasting. <laughs> <Some really laughs> 
really my specialty, Joel. So uh, thanks for enduring. Yeah, no worries, no worries. It was it was some work setting this up, but anyway, yeah, no. But that and you know, in corporate too, we always hear about the great stories and then the crash stories. But there's a lot of struggle in the middle, oh my and we're going to get into that. I want to go back. American auto industry, massive changes, obviously, yes. that most of us have witnessed in our lifetime, even over the last decade, right? If you look at the Great Recession, uh, oh. that gutted the auto industry. Yeah. And you weren't at GM or Saab or Saturn at that time. Um, but what is it, just leadership-wise, what were some of the challenges? And let's go back to Saturn, because I didn't realize the team was that small, four people. Well, the marketing team was. Marketing team was four yeah, people, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so this goes back to, was that the 80s that Saturn It was debuted? the 80s. Really? See, um, I remember the, the 80s. A lot uh, of our, our listeners were born in, even the born in the 80s or 90s yeah. or 2000s. Uh, but um, there was already- <laughs> They can there was, still learn from it. They can still learn from it. So, I mean, to go way back, like uh, I remember when the Japanese, I, I don't remember this, but I remember reading about this. When the Japanese first came over, the products were terrible. And right. the American, and my dad was involved in the auto industry. He's a tool and mold maker. So he did a lot of like lenses for um, car parts and that kind of thing, hmm. taillights. So I always felt like I kind of knew a little bit more about the auto industry than I should have. But, you know, the Japanese were almost laughed out of the market and then right. the products got good. Right. It's kind of like what happened with Hyundai or exactly. Kia and exactly. all of a sudden they got good. And so there was arrogance, hubris in the auto industry, particularly in Detroit, where the big three said, ha, we rule the world. And next thing you knew, people are buying smaller cars. There's the environmental crisis, fuel crisis, oil prices, and these small Japanese and foreign cars all of a sudden start to sell. Yep. So GM comes along and says, we need to do this differently. Yep. And that's where they tapped you? Well, they, they, they tapped us for Saturn. Yeah, I was part of it. Um, you're exactly right. What basically happened is no one was making money on the small car in the U.S. Okay. manufacturing market. So they just gave it up to the Japanese thinking, ah, no one makes any money on it. It's not a big market. Well, then the gas crisis hit and small cars became a huge market. GM, Ford were way behind. So Saturn was intended intended to be a quality breakthrough for small cars for the U.S. manufacturers, especially General Motors, to be price competitive, quality competitive. And it was also meant to be a new labor contract agreement between the union and the management. Because you're right, there was Uberus. There was also um, a lack of trust between the dealers and the executives, between the, the union and the executives. Uh, looking back in hindsight, Saturn did they they were great at two things, but not what was intended to happen. They were the the manufacturing prowess, getting a better product out there really didn't happen. It was pretty average product, but it scored so well because of the guest experience and the and the marketing and how it was positioned with the consumer. But this is interesting story I'll tell because it it's I think it's a good lesson for any leader. Some some of the best. Uh, best ideas, best innovation comes through necessity. Not yeah. just it's not just Steve Jobs thinking, "Hey, I'm going to do iTunes or make an <laughs> iPod." Um, that's so breakthrough. In the Saturn case, I'll never forget this. I was 25, right out of business school. We were in a marketing meeting, figure out how we're going to market this car. And marketing wasn't a big part of the idea. Again, it was it's just going to be a better car, and it's going to be a better contract. Well, we drove what's called the mule car, which is what the engine and transmission is. And you get to feel what the car is really going to feel like and look like. 
and it was not good. It was leaking oil. <laughs> it was noisy. And we literally came back into the conference room at like nine at night and we were all just you know, bringing in hot dogs and pizzas and said, we're, we're going to wow. be here for the next week trying to figure out what we're going to do because we're going to get killed. The Japanese yeah. will kill us. In a nutshell, that's out of that meeting and those series of meetings. And I, it, 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 someone recommended, let's base it on the car experience. Forget the buying experience, not <laughs> the car itself, but the buying experience. And every car up until then, every ad was, you know, a car spinning around on wet pavement. That was the car ad of the 1980s. We were the first company to say, we're going to make car buying fun, trustworthy, and it should be one of the greatest experiences of the life, of your life. And we're going to make it that way. And that was the impetus for what made Saturn so great. And so I think what I walk away from that experience was A, even I, I think the car industry is one of the most competitive, big, tough industries in the world. Yeah. Overcrowded with manufacturers from all over the world. And yet we still were able to carve out a niche. So any leader listening, I don't care what organization or business you're in, you can carve out a niche if you listen to the customer and find that niche. And that's the customer's hated car buying. And that's the biggest thing I learned from Saturn. Wow. What, what did you change about the customer experience? We just basically made it no hassle. It was the biggest thing. So was we, it the, I, I'm trying to remember. And it I'm, was no haggle, no hassle was yeah. what it was called. Now people misunderstand that. They thought it always had to be sticker price. It didn't because the market dictates, dictates that, right? How hot's yeah. the car? And so whatever the dealer put on the car that day, we call them retailers, not dealers. That was what you were going to pay. And when you came in with a trade-in, you were given one offer and that's what they were going to give you. And your, your interest rate was based on a pre-established you know, rate and there was nothing hidden. Whereas in car, the car buying experience is the worst retail experience, I think, on earth other than perhaps buying timeshare you know, down in Florida. <laughs> um, yeah. And so yeah. we were just trying to make it honest, like you would want yeah. to be treated yeah. and like you'd want your mom to be treated. And it really resonated with the consumers. Um, That's good. So that that was the big thing about what Saturn was trying to do for the industry. Um, so successful experience, successful marketing, not so much a successful product. Right. I mean, it was it did its job, but it, yeah. it wasn't known for being an amazing product. And then moving to Saab, like I, I said to you, um, it was because of what I I was part of the Saturn team. I, that was a big, big break for me of getting that kind of role at that young of an age. Yeah, 35 to be a CEO. And what were your peers? Were they all like the other CEOs of the other divisions, Buick? Yeah, uh, they were all, you know, 50s 50. or 60s, yeah. kind of my age now. <laughs> and, um, and and all the people who worked for me were a lot older than me. So that, oh, How do that you handle that? Big... I get that question a lot from young leaders who are taking over and they have an older staff. You know, just um, first of all, realize the situation, be humble, don't have all the answers and listen to them. Ask questions because they know a lot. And I, I ask a zillion questions. I'm probably my, one of my greatest skill sets is asking questions and then shutting up and listening. And I, I spend a lot more time, I think, <laughs> listening than I do talking and that's the biggest thing. And uh, that that's the biggest advice I could give on that. Wow. And then- So you're 30, no, thank you for that. So listen, show humility, 
and don't pretend you're 50 and have right. 30 years of experience. And, and you don't have to tell them something or show them how smart you are. That's actually the last thing they want to see. I mean, I, you talked about the Harvard MBA. I ditched that diploma. I don't even know where it is. Well, mine are in a drawer. Yeah, yeah. You, they they even even teach you that at Harvard. Don't don't put your resume or or your diploma on the wall. It isn't going to help. And it <laughs> it doesn't. And you know it, it's it's better they you know whatever. So, yeah. So um, the other thing about Saab that I would love to share for any um, any listener, the thing I felt the probably the best about there is we we as a team didn't use conventional approaches. And I think every leadership situation I've gone into, there's no playbook. I'm very leery of people say, well, I have a, a framework or a model that works every situation I go into because every one of them is different. And, and models mean you kind of look at things the same way. Now it's fine to have them to start, but very quickly you have to see and listen and say, this is the issue, this is the issue. And if I went through each of my four CEO experiences, what I was trying to accomplish was very different in each one. Mm -hmm. They're very, very different answers. And at Saab, it was the completely muddled brand and the dealership network was horrible. Yeah. And everyone was dueled with like Nissan or Infinity. It, whereas all the other luxury import brands had exclusive facilities, exclusive people. So long story short, we completely restructured the network and we're counterintuitive and actually took a third of the dealers out of the network, fired a third of them basically, required the remaining 65% to do exclusive buildings and people. And what ended up happening is, is we brought in a good car as well called the 9.5 and the overall network went up 67%, but since there was a third of fewer of them, we doubled the sales per store, which created great profitability for them. And then they added exclusive dealerships, exclusive people. And it, it was a really successful experiment. But the, the, the executives at General Motors, the sales executives, their mantra was, if you need more units, you add more dealers. Right. Well, well if they're dueled, it doesn't really bring you much. So that was a that was my point to the listeners is do you know, don't don't necessarily listen, use your instincts, you know, make sure you see the problem and everyone's different. So that's a that's a good point. I mean, you're the CEO of Saab, uh, but you're not the chairman or the CEO of General Motors. No. So you've got superiors, you've got bosses, you've yes, got a board. Definitely. And you've got a different philosophy than Detroit. How how did you handle that? That's a, a great question. Um, you always have to find one advocate. And I found one advocate on the board, the Saturn board, I'm sorry, the Saab board, a uh, guy named Don Hudler, um, God bless his soul. He, he was my biggest fan. He was actually the one that recommended me to be CEO of Saab. And he believed in that strategy because that's kind of how Saturn did it. And he argued on my behalf as a board member with the other board members who they just didn't know any better. So I, you do have to have an advocate usually on the board because if they're all against you or they all have different ideas, it's, it's, it's quite different. So a lot of our leaders, whether it's the not-for-profit world, church world, or business world have boards. Does Isn't that politics? Like how, how do you do that in a way that- It's completely politics. Okay, so let's go there. What do yeah. you mean? So- um, 
look, I, I think every senior pastor, every senior leader has to deal with the board and it's difficult. Yeah. And especially if the board members aren't senior in their mindset, not necessarily in their age, or if they're trying to prove something, the best board members I have found have been CEOs or leaders, senior pastors, have, having the number one role or having enough experience that they're not trying to prove something mm-hmm. by their knowledge on the board. And when you get board members who are trying to impress other board members with their knowledge, it, it's trouble quickly. And my advice I would give to anybody, because uh, if we get to it, my biggest mistake at Sa- Sad, I'm sorry, SeaWorld, all my S's, yeah, 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 at yeah. SeaWorld was um, I didn't move fast enough to coalesce a board that was supportive of my strategy. And they were 100% turnover on the board, two chairmans. Um, they all had different ideas, didn't have a strong chairman. The second one that could help me coalesce the board. Um, I had a lot more, I think, influence than I thought. So I would encourage uh, any pastor leaders, uh, for-profit leaders, you have more, I hate to use the word power because I hate that word, but you have more authority and more backing than one might think. I, since the SeaWorld numbers weren't great, I probably wasn't strong enough to say, I need a better board. I need a board that's will, will coalesce and not be kind of, it was very tough to keep the puppies in the box. And, and, um, but it is political. And yeah. that's probably another mistake I made is I was trying to focus so much on the business. I didn't focus enough on board relationships. I just assumed that, um, you know, that, I needed to just turn the numbers and there's only so many hours a day. So that's, that's, a, a no, that's really get. helpful. So if I can drill down on that a little bit more, Joel, um, whether you're thinking at SeaWorld and you're not the only CEO, I've talked to other CEOs of literally billion dollar companies plus who said my fatal error was the board ousted me or, you know, squeezed me out or right. it just, I left because it just got untenable. And they said, I didn't pay enough attention to the board. Right. Now, these are people who lead major organizations. I talked to pastors and not-for-profits. They're like, yeah, the board and I are at odds. We're in trouble. I think this is a... Yeah, it's, it's true. I don't care what the number of zeros are at the yeah. end of the revenue. Every number one leader of any organization, for-profit or profit, I would say it's going to be on their top five list of frustrations. It's very rare to have. At Hirsch Entertainment, I had a phenomenal world-class board. That's the best board I've ever served on. And I've been on, I think, I don't know, 12 or 14 different for-profit, non-profit boards roughly. So I've seen enough that I think I know. And it's it's rare to find something that that healthy. But... Um, so let's talk about what a healthy relationship is. Cause you had your friend Don back at Saab. Yep. I'm running everything you're saying through my filter of working with a board for over 20 years in leadership. Yep. And I think the tension, the classic tension, whenever this gets discussed is on the one hand, you have a board who has to hold you accountable, which kind of right. is their job. On the other hand, there are leaders who manipulate a board so that the board is a puppet board and right. in their pocket. And so people think if I get too close to the board, am I manipulating the board? Am I, am I trying to get yes people around the table? Can you talk about that tension? That's, uh, I will tell you, at least in my experience in the for-profit world, um, I was never in a situation where 
there was a puppet board. I mean, it was always yeah. a board that they felt their role was and, and appropriately to ask the very tough questions. And, um, but, but there has to be a balance. A board should ask really tough questions, but they have to, also have to be supportive yeah. because the number one job I think is it's the toughest job. It was the biggest transition for me going from number two at Saturn to number one at Saab was by far the biggest change and biggest surprise to me kind of in going into leadership. So, yeah. Um, so what did that look like? Like in the good board relationships that you had, did that mean like, for example, I would always meet our elders outside of board meetings and we'd go for coffee. We'd go for breakfast. Um, largely because we didn't have a building. We rarely held meetings at the church. We always held them in someone's home. It created a different context. And we, yeah. I, I think that's something that actually went fairly well in my leadership because we had we were able to have tough conversations. They were able to challenge me. Um, there were times where I wanted to quit, you know, and they said, no, hang in there. But um, there there's a friendship or, um, and yet, I don't know, I'm trying to say, I don't think it was yes people for sure. Right. No. And if you met them, uh, they would be insulted by that. Right. Yep. To say, oh, that's that's what you think. No, I, but yet there was a camaraderie and a commitment to the mission. So what were some things that you did that that produced better relations with the board? Uh, I, like you said, I think changing up the locations to a more informal, like having dinner the night before, always break bread with uh, your board. Uh, we, that, we did that at Hershen where we broke bread. We actually didn't talk that much about business the night before. It was personal, it was relationship building. But then I would give an overview of what was going to cover tomorrow. I kind of found out what the big issues in their heads were so we could change or maybe prep a little bit better for the morning. Um, and when I was successful, like at Hershen, I spent a lot more time one-on-one -on -one with them yeah. and yeah. took them and broke bread, had coffee, flew down to see them maybe uh, one or twi twice, twice a year. I did none of that. Um, or not enough of that at SeaWorld because it was just- so you were it was, under siege, Yeah, right? we were under siege, under attack, and you just you just lose time. Um, and and I, I just think um, that you also need a really, really strong chairman who will help you. The, really, the, the chairman's role is to help bring consensus of the board because you might have 12 people saying different things. It really shouldn't be the CEO's job to draw consensus that this should be the chairman speaking to the CEO when there's a dog's breakfast of ideas from the board. It's, it's not it really shouldn't be the CEO's job to try to parse all those 12 opinions and go to them individually and get it. Cause that could take years and cost <laughs> thousands of lives. Yeah, right? yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah. so that, those are a couple. No, points. that's good to know. And I, I always find that it is good. Like even, you know, having meetings in a home or a restaurant or, I mean, you don't want to discuss confidential stuff in a restaurant, but, uh, that's interesting because the classic picture is you're sitting around this table. It feels clinical. Right. Um, and I don't know, people behave differently. They do behave differently. And I do think you get, I think you get more truthful conversations, the smaller the group could be. So even Oh yeah. Do you have a theory on that? I oh, do. Definitely. Yeah. What's your, what's your theory? Well, I think anything over 10, you're not going to get close right. to the truth. So an ideal, you're putting a board together. Oh, ideal. I'd like to have um, five to six people. Bingo. Me too. Yeah. You know, or, I, or my senior team. I think senior yeah. teams of five-ish or six yeah. are the ideal number. But why, why do you think well, that? Well, I, I want to know about you and then I'll <laughs> because, go. I'll because go. I think um, you have to have diversity of thought. So you have to have enough for diversity, 
but everyone has to be able to speak and, and, and you know, it just takes time to yeah. get to all the issues. And you can only have a deep, deep relationship, I think, with that many people. Now, Christ did it with, with 12, so maybe that's the max number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he still had his inner circle. He like did. He still had, he had his three. Peter, John. Yeah, so, um, but why, why do you think? Yeah, no, similar reasons. Uh, I just instinctively, I ended up, like, our churches were really small, but I had 18 elders. So 42 people in worship, adding all three churches together, 18 of whom were elders. It was just disasterville when yeah. I started. And so they were appointed for life. And so I started praying for funerals. Oh you know, my like, like, sorry, that's sarcastic. But um, no, then we moved to term service for elders and I oh shrunk the board down. And then when we launched, I got it down to about 11 or 12, but it was still unwieldy. And then when we launched Connexus, I started with three. And then we built it to five. And I think, and sociologically, I've studied this. Um, you think of a dinner party. If you get more than six people at a dinner party, you end up with two conversations. Yeah, always. You end up like, yeah. you have five, you can have one conversation. You have six or seven, you start to move into two. You have seven or eight, uh, you've got two conversations. Yeah. And I think that's what happens sociologically with a board as well. And really, if you're trying to create unity in the organization, you need five people with strong opinions, different opinions, who yep. who are committed to the mission. Uh, but you get five or six in a room. I have the same number you do. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. Okay, exactly. that's my theory. Well, good. Here's... What did you learn about yourself when you became a CEO? Oh my gosh, um, that is such a great question. I, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll say I learned some really good things and some really not so good things. Mm. Um, well, we I do. found that I actually, as far as skills, was really good at cutting to the chase quickly. And just seeing complex situations and being able to kind of see through it quite quickly. Although every time I go in, I had a good format of I would listen for 90 days and do very little. Here's my strategy. And then we'd come up with a strategy as a team. But once we got it, boy, we would we would move fast and hard. I, and I found out I was pretty good at that and kind of cutting through all the all the shape, so to speak, and, and kind of mm -hmm. figure out what the key issues were. Um, and I think because my dad was blue collar and we grew up on the lower side of the tracks, <laughs> I was always good at being able to talk to the chairman, but also the frontline worker. And that differentiated me from a lot of different people. What I found I was really bad at was um, setting boundaries. And, and, and I listened too much to too many different people and I cared too much about what the external world thought. And in the end of the day, you know, we'll, we'll get to this and this is a, a big point to make. I believe it cost me my, my marriage mm -hmm. because I didn't, I listened to too many different voices. I worked too long. I, I didn't fulfill the, that commitment in my marriage and I should have listened always to my internal voice and not the voice of anybody else. And, and so th those were the things that are big learnings for me. Some of them took 20 years to learn. Some of them I knew right away. Yeah, can we, since you raised it, can we talk about that a little bit, the, the commitment to overworking and everything? Because as I reread your book, Love Works, right, which you yep. wrote in 2012? Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, you're still married. Yep. And then that, in the SeaWorld years, kind of didn't survive. Right. Um, what were some of the factors, if you can just explore that a little bit to the degree that you're comfortable that, that led? Because I think we all faced that. I mean, I right. suffered with workaholism. It put pressure on my marriage. 
Um, that was unhealthy and I had to learn how to draw boundaries. It's hard. Yep. Um, and, and I was dealing with a tenth of a hundredth of the pressure that you were under. Well, you know, the, at a very macro level, the book Love Works, and, and we'll get into that. It's, yeah. it's, it's a book about leadership um, under the definition of love, love the verb that's in, yeah. that's in the Bible. What in the last word in that book is dedication to the rest of the values. And as I wrote it, as I thought about it, it was completely in the work context. It, it, right. I wasn't writing about it for my personal relationships. In hindsight, I should have, that entire dedication chapter should have been in bold because my own failures as a leader and as a husband were either, um, I wasn't always truthful and it, it's not, no one goes in and says, I'm going to lie, but we stretch the truth or we are afraid. When I say I was externally focused, I was afraid to tell my own wife some of the mistakes I had made because I was afraid of how she would react. Oh, wow. And and because I did that, and then she found out the truth, not through me, yeah. it was, you know, the trust is sure. gone. And And if I had just said, I know I was wrong and I'm going to tell her I was wrong and we're going to correct the situation. I still think I would probably be married. And the same thing is probably, I know it's true in the business world. If, if with my SeaWorld board, which was dysfunctional with a lot of different people changing in and out, hundred percent turnover, I was listening to too many different voices versus just saying, uh, you, you two are giving me completely different strategies of the last board. And it was, and I can go into that if we have yeah. time, but completely different inputs of what we should be doing because they wanted faster traction. I should have said, I'm not, I know what the internal truthfulness is here. I'm going to, I'm going to stick to what I know is true. What I know is right. If you guys want to fire me, fire me. But so both in my personal life and my professional life, both happening at SeaWorld, um, I think if I had been completely truthful, then I, I might even be at both places still. I might still have my marriage and I might still um, have my job. I'd much rather have my marriage. I mean, it, I will tell anybody on this podcast, you will be faced with working too much, not having date nights, um, you, you, whatever the mistake is, right? Everyone is going to be faced with a chance to work too much, to to have attraction from other people, to to be able to engage in other relationships that are in some way inappropriate. Everyone is going to be faced with that, and it is not listening to any external voice, whether that voice is um, people's attention feels good or the board's attention feels good. None of that should matter. It is what's what's right to your own value set. And if that means getting fired, then uh, that's fine. And I know that's hard for a 30 or 35-year-old person to hear that hasn't been a CEO yet or wants to make a lot of, you know, make money or have wealth. I can say at the other end of that, you know, at 60, none of that really does matter. And all the four CEO opportunities, that's great. And I've enjoyed it and I've learned a lot and I would love to help other leaders. But 
nothing compared to kind of not, not living to the vows or allowing a marriage to uh, unfold and break up is, is by far worse. So I don't know if that will help anybody, but I almost plead to people to uh, not let the world's demands hurt your, hurt your relationships with your spouse. What do you think, <clears throat> looking back on it, kept you from telling the truth? To Marky, to the board, from even doing what you kind of knew. It's not like you didn't know, you right. knew. But uh, what, do you, what do you think that was? I'm a, uh, have you done any uh, podcasts on the Enneagram? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we've done a few. Okay, yeah. so I'm an eight, I, what are you? I'm a three. You're a three? Yeah. So, so yeah. This, 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 the three's mortal sin, and we all have a mortal sin, mm -hmm. right? When I'm healthy, I can... I'm an inspirational leader. If I'm unhealthy because I'm too tired or whatever the reason, um, I can sell so much that it can almost turn to being a deceitful thing. Without, it's not a lie as much as it's not. It's omission, maybe. Mm. I and I am so worried about people's reaction that I'm. There's not an internal clock saying it doesn't matter what their reaction is. This is what's right. So in my case with Marky shouldn't worry about what she might think. It's like, here's the truth. You have a, you know, you have to make your own decision or to the board. Here's the absolute truth. Um, you guys are dysfunctional. You're not helping me. Um, I, I need you to coalesce around this strategy or approve a different one because we're not making traction fast enough. And if they don't like that, but but you were afraid to put your leadership on the line in those right, moments. Right, because so our numbers yeah. weren't good, right? So, right? so our numbers weren't good. So you feel a little bit um, not confident enough, even though I'm very confident in my leadership and the numbers were starting to turn. But I hope I articulate, right, for whether it's personal or professional, whatever set of values you have, that internal clock has to win. That internal yeah. compass has to win not what anybody in the world is thinking. And I actually think it's an epidemic in our society with Facebook, with social media, with Instagram, whatever it is, you know, people's, it's been proven when people get likes, it's almost like a, a, a an endorphin. Yeah, right? there's, a, there's a dopamine a or whatever yeah, that is. Yeah, right. it's a high. So, and ki these kids who are looking at other kids who only show the best part of life, no wonder you know, suicide rates are going up and depression's going up mm -hmm. with young children. So I think we have to listen to that in eternal, internal clock, that internal yeah. set of values. You talked about boundaries and workaholism. And I mean, you've, you've written openly in your book that you know, sometimes you can turn to alcohol or you can turn yep. to other unhealthy vices. Um, tell us about the boundary struggles that pressure in that top seat brings because there's yeah. a you know there's a lot of second chair leaders listing and others listing but there's a lot of people who are really ultimately the CEO the the senior leader of the organization listening yeah tell us about those boundaries well I, first of all I will say I haven't always been good at it yeah right? yeah so yeah. Hershend I was incredibly 13 years and I never got to a stress situation where um I, I think I crossed any boundaries, but at, at SeaWorld, I will say it was seven days a week. It was probably for sometimes 20 hours a day, seven days a week, I would get calls at all hours of the day from, from board members and, and even executives. Um, and especially as I started, we, my wife and I separated, I did, I did start to drink and because mm -hmm. I, 
was in pain. But what I learned through counseling, and it helped me so much, and for anybody else who goes through that, the the, the alcohol doesn't help. It actually makes it worse. It's yeah. a depressant. And we have to, I had the be, this is the best quote I got from my counselor. Do what makes you feel good about yourself, not what makes you feel good. And whether it's mm. drinking or a drug or... Um, some, eating can be, I, th- I think overeating is yeah, like... Overeating. Mm-hmm. Whatever the vice is that people feel like they need for the pain it doesn't help. So, you know, tea at night, not, not a, a scotch is, it has helped me get back to where I'm doing things to feel good about myself and not using something to, to mask some pain because I'm losing my marriage and, and uh, I, I knew I was on my way out of Saab. Looking or, or back. Sea World, sorry. Yeah. Well, and Saab was tough too. Yeah, I mean, you was, write about that yeah. in, in Love Works. So, well, do you think it's possible to have a reasonably balanced life? And I, I don't even like the word balanced. I don't know why I use that. But, you know, a life with some boundaries where you are, are actually home one day a week and handle that level of responsibility. Or you think, no, you know, leadership at that level is just, that's a deal with the devil. Oh, that, I wish I could give you a crisp answer. I don't think I, there I, is. I would say I, in a public company... Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that you can because yeah. between the analysts and the board and the pub and the travel, um, it is an all-consuming job. Yeah, and think- explain for those who are not familiar, maybe with publicly traded companies versus privately held, the additional pressure because Hershend was privately held. Yeah, Hershend, and and there was certainly pressure from the board to perform and grow, but that's all you had to focus on. So right. you you could spend. 60, 50, 70 hours a week on improving the business. At, at SeaWorld, the, the amount of distractions, I mean, if you, if you don't mind me going there no, for just I, a minute. we should. You know, we have, uh, first of all, a company that's in turmoil. We had um, my first 30 days at work, PETA gate broke where one of our employees had been spying on PETA. Now they weren't anymore. Oh man. But I didn't know, but I just gotten there. We had a you know two million dollar legal investigation. We had to fire a bunch of people. I couldn't de- delegate it because my chief counsel and COO were part of the investigation. So I was the only one that could handle that. Then we got into a justice department investigation, and it, literally the the Department of Justice was there almost every week interviewing our employees. SEC investigation for the previous executives possibly misleading the public. We had um, the protests at our parks, protests at my house by the animal activists. Um, it went on and on and on. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And you have to deal with analysts to talk to them every quarter about how you're doing. You have a board meeting every quarter and probably once a month in between with audit committees. So, so all that stuff takes you away from running the business. And so to me, my, my biggest... My biggest mistake, other than not managing the board at SeaWorld better, was I should have forced delegation of those issues. In some cases, I couldn't because the people I was <laughs> should have delegated to were part of the investigation. Part of the investigation, um, yeah. But I... Well, I, and there's I the just, pressure that your share price is going up and down. And I mean, you think yeah. of it as an investor, right? If you, if, you, if you invest at all, and it's like, you know, Apple shares are down... 
3% because they missed targets by 0.3%. Yeah. Yeah, like it's, it's crazy pressure yeah, on the stock price, it's right? It's way, our whole system, that's a whole other conversation we don't have time for, but our whole financial system based on 90-day earnings reports is, is yeah. a very broken system. Um, yeah. Anything else, any other, like looking back on it, lessons from, uh, Hirschend was really a, kind of a big success story. In many ways. Well, Hershens, uh, I will say anybody who knows Jack and Pete Hershen and the family, they're the, they're the best uh, owners I've ever seen. And, and tell us what they do, the parks they, you own. So they, yeah. they're one of the largest uh, private uh, theme park companies in the, in the world. I think they're ninth, ninth largest in the, in the, in the world. Um, so we, we owned at the time a lot of stuff in Branson, Missouri, Silver Dollar City. We are the the, the, the non-music partner of Dolly Parton. So all of her, mm. you know, theme parks, dinner theaters, she's a wonderful, wonderful lady. We purchased the Harlem Globetrotters. So it's a very diversified Stone Mountain couple. in Atlanta. Yes. Is that yours as well? Yes. So, but here's, here's the big, if, you know, if we run out of time here, the big other thing I would love for the listeners to understand is when I talked about those struggling years at General Motors, that was almost 20 years of feeling like there has to be a different way. Yeah. It just has to be different than this. It was so autocratic and fear-based and a bunch of cigar smoking, swearing executives that it was really 1960s in the 1980s. Um, it was the Hershens that when I came there, uh, because I uh, when Greenlight, uh, was sold. I didn't want to go back to the auto industry. So Jack asked me to be the, 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 the president there. They taught me how to love people, love the verb, not love the emotion and still create unbelievable ex- results. If you looked at uh, Hershen versus any public or private theme park company, their margins are just as good. Their returns are just as good. Their turnover is almost non-existent. And it's because of that culture. And what I did there, the only thing I can take credit for is not building the culture, but to put a vernacular to it. And we called it Love Works. And that's what I wrote the book about. And I would encourage anybody who has any of that angst in their soul that leadership should be more caring. And basically, if you care about people, I think it is a book that would be helpful to people oh, to yeah. read. Um, no, I reread it. I read it when it came out and I reread it getting ready for this interview. It's a great book. It's a challenging book. And the fact that you can't flawlessly execute it all the time doesn't mean it's not a great book. Well, you, you, and churches are not automatically loving. I mean, churches can have some of the most toxic workplaces out there. It's not just corporate America. Well, actually, I am... I, th- I think the rest is, I feel a, a calling from God. And if God continues to, to put this on my heart, I actually want to focus the most on helping pastors and churches put love works into place because my, my point of view, I, I've, I've spoken at a few like rethink leadership that, yeah, that you yeah, organize you and, and run some stuff together. Um, when I ask people to raise their hand, if they have any kind of love works, or any kind of measurement system of how people behave, mm-hmm. nobody raises their hands because they're so focused on loving the congregation. Sometimes the staff and employees aren't focused on enough. And the basic premise is a do goal versus a be goal. And mm-hmm. all organizations, nonprofit or profit, have 
do goals. You've got to hit so many church attendees or you have to profit attendance. You got to hit the numbers basically. Yeah. Everybody has that. Very few companies actually have processes and systems behind what we call at Hershend and at SeaWorld, the B goals. What yeah. kind of leader do I want to be? Everybody puts it up on the mantle. Here are our values. And they put it on a billboard or on a poster. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. There's a whole system behind it. There's processes, there's measurements, there's discussions with employees uh, at, at Hershen and at SeaWorld. Half of, people raise, half of people's raises were based on the B goals, not just their do goal results. So give me an example of a B goal. So, and you mean BE, right? Yeah, like I, I mean be, the BE. So yeah. the do goals, all the numbers. The B goal would be actually in, in Love Works, we, we paraphrase seven words that represent the definition of love. Mm. Those are the beagles. So love is patient. This comes from yeah. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. That's one of the words. Love is kind. Love is forgiving. Love is trusting. Love is truthful. Love is dedicated. And every one of those words had sub behaviors that we would talk about with our employees. For instance, if, if you're, if you're going to be truthful, have you had a difficult conversation with an employee lately? As an employee, are you willing to be truthful with your boss without fear of retribution? These are specific things we ask and people are rated on that. And that's how we hopefully get a truthful environment. Does your boss speak last in meetings? Because you're not ever going to get the right. truth if you speak first, right? You're only going to get to... So then we would measure it, have a discussion about it and would go to the race. So what the book goes into is not just a philosophy, it goes into the actual processes to some degree, at least at a high enough level that people can understand it. And uh, that's the magic of what Hershen did versus just putting it on the wall. It became part of the ethos and very, very reinforced by senior management and the board. Right. So let's talk about how it worked. Uh, so at Hershen, what were some of the practical, tangible uh, expressions, both in your leadership and in the team and the thousands of employees you had in the parks. Yep. Like how did that actually play out where it became a healthier culture yep. and a culture where it was love-based leadership? Yeah. And that, that could be a really long answer. The really short yeah. answer will be the number one metric we're looking for is engagement of the employee. Um, unfortunately in America, top, when I say top box out of four, you're getting a four and the worst would be a one in America. And this is a 30 year kind of flat trend. 35%, only 35% of Americans are top box engaged in their work. Now wow. it's gone up slightly the last three years because of the hot economy and people aren't trading jobs at Hershend. We would go, we bought, we would buy parks and, I can tell you like in, right here at Stone Mountain in Atlanta, Georgia, when we came in, the top box engagement score was 17%, which So is, these are people who are phoning it in. They're these phoning are people, they in. They don't care. They probably it's have like, I got like a crappy two job. side jobs. I hate it. Moonlighting. They're working right. two or three jobs. Give me my $13 an hour and I'm out of here. Right. Yeah, well, I wish or it was whatever. 13. Um, whatever. It is now, but it wasn't yeah. then. And then uh, within three years, it had gotten to 65%. And when I left, it was at 80 percent top box and that wow. that's world class what do you mean by top box meaning just that 80 percent of employees said they were fully engaged in their work out of out of one out of a four 
they were a four, meaning we are completely engaged. We love our job and turnover went down. And then, then of course, profitability goes up. It happens to be what's good for the business too. So how do you do that? I mean, let's, let's go into a little more detail. Like I'm, I'm, um, a gate attendant. All I do is see whether you're tall enough to take the ride. I'm making minimum wage, which yep. was, forgive me, I'm Canadian. What would it have been roughly? Yeah, at that time, it would have been uh, seven fifty. So seven fifty an hour. hour. Yeah, you know, I'm yep. barely paying my gas to get here. Yeah, I hate my job. It's hot. Um, all I can, if I got a better job, I'm gone tomorrow. Yep. So how do you motivate me? So. I, there are a lot of factors. I wish I could give you a silver bullet, but yeah, yeah, no, the, but you did some things. I mean, yeah. from 17 to 80. So the first thing is to put a measurement in place and that's just asking the employees at least once a year. Now we actually did it every quarter. If it was a bad performing property, ask them how they feel, ask mm -hmm. them. And we had the six key things that the Gallup organization, which they're the ones that measure this engagement score yeah. nationwide. What are the six things that take engagement up? And you know, I don't have time to go into those, but there's six key questions. And we would track that by supervisor, by employee. We knew everywhere in the company where the problems were, and it's always leadership, it's right. always leadership. Yeah. And then we would do something about it when the scores were bad. And then every 90 days we'd go back in with SurveyMonkey and make sure the scores were improving. If they weren't, the leader was gone. And one one big fallacy about Love Works is there's a high, high commitment to performance, and you just got to have an honest conversation. So it's not just well, just love them or whatever. No. It's all okay. No, uh, but okay. So how? But so then we well we measure measure them. Then they also um, they were able to in that six questions. They're basically also uh, kind of grading their boss, so to speak, they would get raises and bonuses based on how they were doing with the love works. And, and when they got reviewed, then we also started a foundation and I know every company can't do this, but, um, when I was on undercover boss, that was a big thing that we were pushing. Is was, that still out there? Uh, I don't do think, you know? I don't think the show's still on. No, but, no, it's not on, but I wonder oh, if foundation? that lives in YouTube or something. Oh yeah. Cause we'll link to the it's episode. Out on, it's out on You were one Netflix, of the first ones on. The, the first season. Yeah. First season of Undercover episode Boss. Episode six of uh, first season, but it yeah, portrays we'll that, um, it portrays that foundation where this is an interesting concept. Nothing happens unless the employee gives a dollar then we would match it as the company and actually the owners, the Hershens matches. So one became three oh, and wow. all that money was used to help the employees in need. And so it started to spiral up that this was before Obamacare. So there were a lot of them like part-timers didn't have benefits, but we used this pool of money to help them when they were in trouble. And what happens is, you know, where else would they go to where there's a foundation to help them they're, they're getting bonuses they aren't getting at other properties. And we, we try to be competitive with wages, you know, at least median to everybody else. So it, it, it takes three years though. It's yeah. not, it's not a silver bullet. And all of a sudden it starts so to spiral up. How do you get me? And I hear that. And that that's highly motivating. How do you get me to care about the guest? How do you get me to say, wow, this is actually another human being I'm interacting with. Yeah. Not like, hey, I've only got 45 minutes till my break. Because that's how they're graded. Like when mm. when we had a simple one page, so you measure a, a seasonal person. Um, you know, the, you can you can get guest scores at least down to kind of department areas, not to a person usually, but 
we, we, they, they got more, they, they were paid more, they got bonuses or they were retained because they were good with the customer. And we celebrated the heck out of it. I mean, if you help the customer in an abnormal way, that was, we would have monthly celebrations. I would fly in for the big annual celebration. We just made a very, very big deal about guest experience. Oh, that's great. But and what you, as Andy says, our mutual friend, Andy Stanley, what you celebrate gets repeated. Yes. And yeah. we, we celebrated that like crazy. Okay. So let's take those principles to SeaWorld. And again, you got really high employee engagement, in, increased, uh, great board. Uh, you're in a reasonably good place personally <laughs> yeah. when you're at Hershend, right? Those yes. principles are working for you in your own life. Yes. Is that fair? Yes. All right. Definitely fair. Then you go to SeaWorld and you try to apply the same things. It's less than three years, so we don't really have the turnaround window. But talk about how the Love Works principles worked and then maybe how they didn't work as well when you were at SeaWorld. Yeah, that's that's an obvious question in a way because um, a public company, a lot of people think it can't happen in a public company. Yeah. I, I actually fully believe it can. Um, there are many examples where it has. Um, like, uh, yeah, I know that you've probably talked to Cheryl Batchelor when they yeah, yeah, that she's was, been on was here. Popeyes. And you're on the board at Popeyes. Right? Yep. Now yeah. we've sold that company now but yeah. so that the board doesn't exist anymore. But she did a phenomenal job in a public company. Every metric at SeaWorld that is about the employee engagement improved every year we were wow. there. Um, with the exception of one property and that, that went down one year and then it came back up again. But and for the whole corporation went up, um, the, 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 the issue at the front line, the, the, all of the processes were working. What wasn't working really was uh, support from, from the board because they, they wanted, it's not that they didn't support it. It was the, they wanted the numbers yeah. and quickly. And um, although I went in saying it would take three, at least three, maybe five years, I was not even there three years. Um, I, I do think there was an underestimation of how long it would take, but it wasn't a big part of what they wanted because, right. and I think this is not, I'm not blaming, this is not about the board. They were doing their fiduciary It's a values clash. And it's, and it's also the way the markets are set up, right? Yeah. The public markets don't reward um, a company helping in other ways. And I think that's a problem. That's a whole different conversation uh, is that I believe stakeholders are not just the shareholders. If you're looking at only the shareholder, all you're doing is maximizing profit in the short term. I think frankly feel any fool can go in and do the wrong thing and increase profit really quickly. You cut costs, you take out quality, you don't pay people enough. And for two or three years, you'll get by, but people will start to leave. The customer won't come back because the quality is worse. We've seen it in every industry. That's where I think the 90 day horizon, the public market is just not set up properly to do the right thing for the long term. That was more of the conflict at SeaWorld than it wasn't that the board didn't want to treat employees well. It was that, hey, you got to get the numbers up now, um, not two years from now. And I, and that's that's more of a public market issue. But you did see some aspects, if I read my notes right, that of, of employee engagement and satisfaction oh, yeah. went up Absolutely. while you were there at SeaWorld. And, and, and not only our guest scores went up, 
But changing our employee brand to being a purpose-driven brand, mm-hmm. the millennials loved being part of SeaWorld. They could take one day a year, do turtle walks. They could do trash pickups. They, they were part of a company that was all about helping ocean marine animals. And once they understood that, they loved working for the company. And we were able to compete with a Disney Universal that paid a lot more per hour because mm. they were working for a cause. And that's a good thing. So I want to, because uh, we've had a great conversation. I really appreciate your honesty. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think these kinds of conversations are so helpful. Uh, I think some people would be too afraid to see themselves in the mirror. But uh, I think back to myself at different points and like I needed conversations like these and they're hard to find. So thank you, Joel. I think it's, well, you're welcome. I think it's important that leaders know that it is lonely. It can be hard at times. You, you can go, I know you've gone through a really tough space time and came out better because of it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing the same thing. Um, I think everybody goes through that in life. It's important that they know that Yeah, everyone goes through it. So we talked about the rhythms and disciplines and habits that maybe weren't very functional and didn't serve you or your family or, or ultimately God yeah. particularly well. Um, but you've had about 18 months now since you exited uh, SeaWorld. And uh, we're here in your home. You, you, you've got some new habits. And you took me upstairs and you showed me a really <laughs> cool space that you've kind of designed for yourself. T- tell me about that. Well, I'm, uh, the greatest thing about not being a public company CEO is having more time. And so I love music. And um, so I'm playing a lot more music, piano. My brothers and I are in a band called the Berlin Airlift. And we get together once a year for reunions ever since my parents died and love doing that. Um, and I, I, I love spending every morning that, I mean, not every morning, but every morning where I'm not like on an airplane, kind of half an hour, just reading the Bible, praying, reflecting, writing down my mistakes from yesterday, you know, a reflective mm-hmm. life. And every time I've gotten in trouble, whether it's medicating, whether it's just doing the wrong thing, it oh, I can always tie it back to I wasn't having my quiet time, my prayer time, and I started forgetting that the only audience I should be pleasing is God. It's very simple formula. Yeah. Yeah. It's just harder the heck to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes our actions are like we almost are acting like God's not there. So are we really, do we really believe he's there when we're acting like he's not? So when I'm in his word every day and praying and communicating, I don't forget during the day that he's there. And, and that's a, and I know that's kind of one-on-one stuff, but I can definitely point to getting away from that. So that's a really good rhythm. So did you have that rhythm um, in seasons when you were in corporate? Oh, of course. And then things went better at home, things went better at work. I can directly link it to a lack of my own spiritual health, quiet times, you know, whether it's hanging with my friends, my accountability group, my church, it it really does make a difference. And I think that's why... I'm saying this and I'm, re- I'm willing to be vulnerable because I think one of the greatest failings of senior leaders and pastors are right at the top of the list is getting isolated mm-hmm. and, and feeling like they can't share what they're going through. And um, it, it will go badly if, if, yeah. if they don't share, if they don't have a cohort to talk to, um, if, they, if they don't find other leaders 
And it usually can't be your board because no one wants to go to their board and say, I'm really struggling. Or, I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. right. Well, you're <laughs> done Friday. Yeah, that's right. Out your desk. Yeah, we don't, I don't want to hear your problems. Yeah. Just solve our problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, that's, a, that's probably the healthiest. So how did you cultivate that? I mean, now it's a little bit easier. You're back in Atlanta. You've right. got some time. You no can play music it. in the morning, you know, and, and you get a picture of your small group, you know, here yep. in your, your uh, living room. But uh, when you were successful cultivating community, when you were in corporate, how, how did you do it? It's just priority. I mean, the yeah. truth is... But was it like, was it small group? Was it... Like, oh, what, oh what, like how, it was... I have an accountability group for, for 35 years. Well, actually, no, ever since Harvard, so however long that's been, about 40 years, mm. we talk every month by phone. Mm. And we've uh, never missed a phone call until wow. recently. But And there's reasons for that. But I um, I would recommend that to anybody. And then, um, you know, I always had, I have someone local too, but this group, they, we've known each other for all these years and we share everything. And they've held me accountable. You know, when I've made mistakes, they've, uh, you know, I get, uh, we've ostracized each other. It's just like, you know, when you get your act together, you can come back on these calls. And if you, and so it's a very, it's a very good strict group. So at the bottom, they were calling you out and you were oh, telling them the truth? Yeah, well, not soon enough. Ah. I eventually did, but I wasn't truthful. Guys, there's some stuff I've been hiding. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. that's don't do that. Just, yeah. just, and they would have loved me either way. They would have, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't truthful immediately. And and man, it doesn't get any better. It only gets worse. So, th those are when you ask about rhythms. I'd have to say it's the accountability group. It's the quiet time in the morning. And um, yeah, I wish I had never left those things. But I just want to encourage people. You'll go through down times, but you can always make your way back up. Um, you can't do everything, but you can do the important things. And that's... So when you look at, because this is a sojourn in your life, you, you want to continue to do some other things as you look ahead, whether that's in corporate or not-for-profit world or working with churches or yep. writing other books and that kind of stuff. What rhythms are... Uh, you know, are there some rhythms that you think, okay, these are now non-negotiable. So I'm going to assume scripture, you know, that quiet yeah. time in the morning, accountability, any other rhythms, disciplines, or yeah, strategies I, that I you're like, yeah, going well, forward, where this I is am, different. That's a great question, Carrie, but where, where I am right now, I, I said it before, but not very articulately, it's the internal clock. It's the internal mm -hmm. values. It's yeah. like yeah. when I, something happens in my intuition or in my gut or something I say or I'm lack of forgiveness or I'm angry at somebody, I just, I have to deal with it and not worry about what that person thinks. Just say, I'm upset at this. This is what happened. Why? And, or I did this wrong. You need to know or whatever it is. Um, that's the rhythm that you know, if you or any listener wants to pray for me, it is yeah. it is well, it is will. to uh, listen to that internal clock, internal clock, and as a three on the enneagram, not listen to the external voices that I'm trying to please for God knows why. You know, because they're not they're not my God and they're not my family, and for some reason, I I have tried to please too many voices. So that's that's the new rhythm that I am very excited about whatever years God gives me left, I'm not going to mess that up. Wow. 
Well, this is what they don't teach you at Harvard. Fair enough. <laughs> I was going to write a book. <laughs> Actually, uh, remember the book, What They Don't Teach You at Harvard, uh, that guy wrote? Yeah, yeah. I was going to teach what they do teach and what's wrong with it. I thought uh, that was, but it's too late to write the book. <laughs> Joel, you've been so transparent. It's so helpful. I would highly recommend your book, Love Works. It well, does stand. You. And now you've got nuance and context, you know, despite the struggles of the last few years that... Uh, I think we're all being tested all the time and the struggles of yesterday will not be the struggles of tomorrow. Well, uh, but it's a joy it. to sit here with you. You helped a lot of leaders as, as vulnerable, open as you were, as painful, I'm sure, as talking about some of this stuff was. Uh, it's getting conversations out there. That was sort of the heartbeat of my idea behind this podcast because you're not alone. And no. everybody looks at everyone else and says, well, they don't have any problems. And the reality is we all do. And if we can share them, we can help each other. Yep. So thank you. Well, thank you. And keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job at it. Well, thanks. Where can people find you online if they want to? Uh, I think you? Instagram yeah. uh, would be the best way and, to, and I, I post there and I will start doing more. So we will uh, link to that. All right. Okay, great. Joel, thank you. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. Well, that's one of the reasons I am so glad we're doing this podcast. I really think, you know, content is everywhere. Ideas are everywhere. You guys, you're reading books. You're, you know, getting, looking at TED Talks. I mean, I, I get it, right? But where do you really have conversations like this? So, Joel, I just want to say thank you again publicly for your vulnerability, your honesty. We do have transcripts. We have show notes. You can find everything at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 282. And uh, of course, it's free to you. Also, thanks to our partners, ProMedia Fire. If you haven't checked them out yet, make sure you head on over to promediafire.com forward slash carry, get 10% off for life. And uh, Ministry Grid from Lifeway, you can go to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry. There's an August special, all of Ministry Grid training for your staff for $399 for the entire year, plus a copy of my latest book, Didn't See It Coming. If you haven't read it, great. If not, now you got a copy to give away or share with somebody. We are back with a fresh episode again next week. And uh, it's another powerful conversation. I'm, I'm spending more time on the road uh, doing these in person. I find personally that uh, the more I can do these interviews in person, uh, the better they tend to go. And not that there's anything wrong when you do them by video. But uh, I sat down with Lee Kreitcher and Jason Howard. So Lee is the founding pastor of Amplified Church in Pittsburgh. Jason is his successor. Another powerful behind-the-scenes interview on succession and particularly the emotions of pastoral succession, why leaders hang on too long, and why successors are afraid to talk about the real issues. Here's an excerpt. And I thought... I don't want to do that. <laughs> like that was my first reaction. Like I, I don't, I don't see myself doing that. And you're how old that. at this point? 30? Well, I, no, I was twenty, not even twenty-five, probably. Oh wow. Yeah, and and so I'm like, I, I want to sing. Like, I, like I want to lead worship. I want to do creative stuff. Like, I, I don't see myself in that in that role. And so I was in a crisis because here is the, my leader who I'm called to serve who is asking me to step into something that I'm not comfortable stepping into and I've got a crisis. Am I going to listen to what I want to do or am I going to listen to the voice of I'm going to faithfully serve in whatever capacity I'm asked? And honestly, um, you know, we, Lee, we had this conversation and finally, and, and I don't know, a few months later, Lee's like, listen, I got a board meeting. I'm going to propose you as the successor. I'd sure like to know whether or not you're in, you're in line with this.
All right. So that's next week. And again, another powerful, very real interview. Also coming up on the podcast, we have John Townsend, Christy Wright, J.D. Greer, David Kinneman, uh, David Platt, Max Lucado, Louis Giglio, Gordon McDonald, Patrick Lencioni. I'm flying to San Francisco to hang out with Patrick at the table group. It's going to be great. We have Albert Tate coming up, N.T. Wright. I can't tell you how stinking excited I am about the opportunity to interview someone that people will be reading 100 years from now. All that's coming up on the podcast. And again, guys, thank you so much for making this journey more than we could ask or imagine when we started this thing uh, almost five years ago. Yeah, who knew that uh, it would end up being what it has become. But it's a joy to be able to do this with you. I hope your summer slash early fall is going well, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.